Mr. President, if there are no other unanimous consent requests, I move that the Senate adjourn pursuant to the Sunny Dye Resolution. All in favor say aye. Opposed, no. The ayes have it. It stands adjourned pursuant to the signing of agreement. Hi, listeners. This is Understand South Carolina, a news podcast from the Post and Courier. I'm Emily Williams. On May 13th, South Carolina's regular legislative session came to a close. This session followed an election that strengthened the GOP majorities in both the House and the Senate, and it showed. The session started with a law banning most abortions and ended with passage of bills expanding gun rights and resuming the death penalty. We've already brought you a couple episodes this year about what state lawmakers have been doing. You might have heard our podcast on the so-called heartbeat bill banning most abortions or the hate crimes legislation that looked like it had a chance of being signed into law this year. Today, we have updates on both of those, along with some of the bills we haven't discussed yet. But before we get into that legislation, here's Assistant Columbia Bureau Chief Shauna Adcox with a quick summary of how the legislative session works in South Carolina. By state law, the session goes from the second Tuesday in January to the second Thursday in May. So by state law, it has to gavel out, officially end at five o'clock on the second Thursday in May. So that's why we say the end of the regular session. Now, they can create special sessions and they actually have to pass a bill ahead of time, which they did to even allow that. But the special sessions are very limited. They actually put in the what they call the signy die resolution that says they're going to deal with budget stuff. They're going to deal with anything that's already passed both chambers and has reached a conference committee, which means the compromise committee. So they can take up any possible compromises that have been worked out between the end of the regular session and the special session. And this year they can also deal with redistricting. Obviously they need to in special sessions later this fall, but the primary purpose of special sessions next month will be the budget because that has to be in place because the fiscal year starts July 1st. This was the first year in a two-year session. So bills that didn't pass this year still have a chance. So officially, the legislative sessions are what they call two-year sessions, which really means they're, they're bookended by two-year elections. So every House member runs for a two-year term. And so wherever things ended in the process where the committee on the floor or whatever, it just stays in place at whatever point it ends for it to be picked up next year. You know, when they come back second Tuesday in January, you know, if it was on the floor for in on the calendar, they can start debating it right away. If it's in the committee, then it can still roll its way through. Things don't die until the end of the session next year. So really the end of the session next year is a much bigger deal in terms of it officially dies, would have to, the whole process would have to start all over again. One of those bills that didn't make it to the governor's desk this year, but could still have a chance next year, was the hate crimes bill, which we discussed on an episode earlier this year. The bill did pass the House, which was big. It advanced to the Senate floor, but that's as far as it got this year. Hate crimes legislation has been discussed for a while in South Carolina, but one of the differences this year is that South Carolina's business community started strongly advocating for its passage. The South Carolina Chamber of Commerce held a press conference on the last day of the session to respond to the fact that this bill wasn't sent to the governor's desk this time around. 
I thought that they were going to kind of blast the legislature for not getting it done. Uh, instead, they took the tactic of, you know, kind of being a cheerleader of, yay, thank you for, for getting it as far as you did. And we really, really want you to take this as priority when you return. You know, instead of harping on it, it was uh, the tactic of being the cheerleader and hoping that they usher it on through. The state legislature made important progress elevating protections to provide South Carolinians with new levels of personal safety and respect by moving the hate crimes bill from the floor of the House through the committee process to the Senate. However, we did not get over the goal line with the bill's final approval and adoption into state law. We still have one more year in this two-year session, and we urge the Senate to take up the bill when they return in January and make it their top priority for rapid approval. Another thing we talked about on this podcast earlier this year was the abortion ban that was advancing through the state house. After that episode aired, that bill was later sent to Governor Henry McMaster and he signed it into law. Now that new law, which would prohibit abortions about six to eight weeks into a woman's pregnancy, is considered unconstitutional now. That means it hasn't taken effect and it won't, unless the Supreme Court's interpretation of the law around abortion changes in a way that would make that ban constitutional. We learned just last week that the U.S. Supreme Court is taking up an abortion case that could have big implications for the ban in South Carolina and many other similar laws in other states. Here's political reporter Jamie Lovegrove. Last Monday, the U.S. Supreme Court decided, after months of delaying this decision, decided to take up a Mississippi abortion case, a 15-week ban that the Mississippi legislature passed and the governor signed into law. You know, so that is more than double the length of the South Carolina proposal, which is a six-week ban. But 15 weeks is still, under current Supreme Court precedent, unconstitutional because Supreme Court precedent up to this point has been that uh, you cannot impose an undue burden on a woman's access to an abortion before the fetus is viable outside of the womb, meaning it could survive outside of the womb by itself. Generally, the medical community has considered that time to be around 24 weeks into a pregnancy. That certainly signals to a lot of the legal experts I've spoken to that this increasingly conservative Supreme Court that, of course, has three justices that were appointed by President Trump, six to three conservative majority, is likely to if not entirely reverse uh, Roe v. Wade, the, you know, the, the case that set this legal framework and KCV Planned Parenthood, another case uh, that set that framework, they'll at least likely substantially amend that framework to give states the ability to impose more restrictions than they have in the past and, and set that date earlier. That could open up the possibility that the South Carolina law and, you know, the, the many other fetal heartbeat laws like it that have been passed in about a dozen states around the country at this point uh, could be found to be constitutional after all. Uh, South Carolina's law has currently been blocked by lower courts that are constrained to follow Supreme Court precedent. You know, in all likelihood, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals will uphold that block and say that this is still unconstitutional. But if the Supreme Court changes their jurisprudence on this issue and changes how the legal system views abortions, 
that could potentially create an opening for South Carolina's law to actually take effect. That'll not happen for at least, you know, at least one year, if not a few years, because the Supreme Court is unlikely to rule on the abortion, uh, the Mississippi case until the summer of 2022. But at that point, uh, things could change pretty quickly. Is there a possible in-between that you've heard any experts discuss of possibly the Mississippi ban being upheld, but like we discussed, South Carolina's is much more restrictive than Mississippi's? A- absolutely. There, there is certainly a possibility whereby the Supreme Court says that a 15-week ban is acceptable, but you know, significantly earlier than that is not. As I mentioned, the standard in the past has been viability outside of the womb, whether or not the fetus can survive outside of the womb. They could change that standard that could allow for a 15-week ban, but not allow for a six to eight-week ban like South Carolina has. So that is that is a possibility. You know, we really just have to see where the court lands on it. There is one other possibility, which is unlikely, but possible that the Supreme Court upholds the ban on Mississippi's ban, as in says that Mississippi's law is unconstitutional. If they do that, then the odds of South Carolina's law really ever taking effect will be drastically diminished. Because if the Supreme Court says a 15-week ban is unconstitutional, of course a six-week ban is going to be unconstitutional. And that would reaffirm uh, Supreme Court precedent on abortion access as opposed to changing it. So, you know, again, unlikely, but if they do rule that way, that would be a really big blow to abortion opponents in South Carolina and a really huge uh, and decisive victory for, for Planned Parenthood and the other folks who are fighting South Carolina's ban. One of the laws that came out of this session that made national headlines had to do with effectively reinstating the death penalty in South Carolina. Here's Assistant Columbia Bureau Chief Shauna Adcox again, explaining how capital punishment in the state of South Carolina had worked, what's changed under its new law, and why. Condemned inmates on death row had a choice. You know, you you could die by lethal injection or electrocution, The problem is that since 2013, those lethal injection drugs haven't been available. They started expiring in 2013. And companies, the pharmaceuticals, don't want to supply it anymore because they don't want to be tied with killing people. Um, There's, you know, there's a lot of opposition to the death penalty. And one of the reasons this bill has been sort of floundering out there is because they were like, you know, it's there's no rush because there was no one that was close to exhausting all their appeals yet to be put to death anyway. Well, starting in December, that's when the first person came up that had exhausted all his appeals and could have been put to death, but we didn't, obviously he did not choose to die by electrocution. You know, they they could have carried it out if someone said, oh yeah, I want to die by electrocution, but who's going to do that? Anyway, since December now we've had three people whose who's, uh, appeals have all been exhausted, but we haven't been able to carry out the death penalty because the drugs haven't been available and there's, there's no foreseeable future when they will be available. So this new law specifies that if lethal injection drugs were to become available again, that would still be an option. But if they aren't available, which they are not at this time, 
electrocution is the default method of execution in South Carolina. The law also added death by firing squad as an option. That part of the law in particular drew harsh criticism. There was a lot of backlash to that firing squad. That's what got so much attention. You know, that was seen as barbaric, archaic. So perhaps ironically, it was uh, the suggestion, encouragement of former state Democratic Party chairman Dick Harputlian, who also happens to be a former solicitor, chief prosecutor for the Columbia area. And his point was that firing squad is more humane than electrocution. Firing squad is immediate instead of, you know, there have been folks it takes, you know, several minutes to die by electrocution. And before that, you know, again, this has been around for five years before when that was introduced by who is now Senate Minority Leader Brad Hutto, it was considered what they call a poison pill. Sometimes people put in an amendment in something hoping and knowing that that would kill the bill. And sure enough, when when Hutto put that in there, it was considered a poison pill and, and the whole effort kind of floundered. But this time around, Harpulian made it very clear that this was he was not trying to be sly about it. He was truly putting that in there. And they brought up that uh, Justice Sotomayor on the U.S. Supreme Court has actually written in opinion that that it was a more humane way to die. We began executions in this country by hanging people. And if you've read, and I have, the history of that, hanging is not humane. Very rarely does it actually snap somebody's neck and they die immediately. More often than not, they strangle to death, or in some extreme cases, their head literally comes off. Horrible way to go. The electric chair, not much better. They are burned to death. There's instance after instance after instance where people are not dead after the first jolt. They're screaming and on fire. Horrible, horrible thing to do to another human being. I have proposed, along with the senator from Hori, a alternative that the condemned could accuse, and that is the firing squad. Why the firing squad? First of all, there is no instance I have found in which somebody was not dead instantaneously. I mean, there's the anxiety of dying, but you're going to have that no matter what, whether it's electric chair, whether it's injection, whether it's uh, whatever, um, you're going to have anxiety. But the actual pain and suffering of, of death is probably the least painful and least suffering of any, any method. Now that this has become law, what does that mean for the people who are on death row in South Carolina now? Well, it depends on whether there are lawsuits, and and a lot of people expect lawsuits. Uh, if if there are, then not quite sure. It will have to work its way through the courts because some say that people who were sentenced to death under a different law—that's essentially not fair because those it may have been a deal may have been worked out based on. The prior law in terms of lethal injection. In terms of logistics, corrections sent, whether they've actually done so already or in the process, I'm not quite sure, but they'll send to the, the Supreme Court, our state Supreme Court, we are able to carry out these executions that have been delayed, three now, and a fourth is nearing his last appeal or the end of the process. 
they'll have what they also need to do is figure out a protocol for the firing squad. Now, the legislature made that an option. It didn't give them all the specifics of how to do that. It just told corrections to set up a process. And corrections is looking at the states where that is an option already to lay that all out. I'm Chloe Johnson, and I report on the coastal environment and climate change for the Post and Courier. Charleston is on the front lines of climate change and sea level rise, and I write about how we're adapting to it. Should Charleston build a seawall? Can we start moving out of flood-prone areas? We have time to dig into these tough questions at the Post and Courier. But the only way we get to do that is if you subscribe. Please support our work at The Post and Courier as we bring you vital information on the future of this region. The end of this legislative session wasn't all controversial issues. One bill that will affect South Carolina drivers recently gained easy passage and was signed by the governor. It would penalize drivers who are driving too slowly in the left lane on highways. Here's reporter Adam Benson. It basically is a way to prevent folks from using the left lane as, as a cruising lane. The initial bill that came out of the House was set penalties of $200 and up to a 30-day jail sentence, believe it or not, um, which was a little bit too much for the Senate to, to live with. So the bill earlier this month went to um, a, comp- a compromise committee, conference committee, and it got worked out to be a fine of $25, which is the same as a seatbelt violation. But there was a provision added that would prevent police from searching vehicles that have been stopped solely for violating the left lane driving law, which was something that um, a lot of Democrats uh, wanted to see uh, in the bill. And so that was included in the final version. What also was included in the final version was the scope of the bill. Initially, it was just pertained to the, to South Carolina's interstates or lane highways. Under the current bill now, it's any road of, of two lanes or more, the thinking being this is as big of a problem in rural parts of the state, if not a, a, as it is in you know the urban areas. So that's uh, in the bill as, as well. The interesting thing about this is, is there's sort of a, a pretty long grace period. Uh, the bill, like I said, the bill was signed May 17th. But tickets can't actually be written for violations until the middle of November, and that's to basically train drivers to about the new law. The Department of Transportation will be erecting signs every 35 miles on interstates warning folks of this new law that's taking hold. So, so that's where that's at. What does this actually mean for for drivers on the road? I guess how how slow is slow? You know, at what point are you actually violating this law? You know, you are asking a question that many folks asked during the committee debates and, and floor debates because the bill does not have uh, a speed limit written into it. The, log- the prevailing logic is whatever the posted speed limit is. But the other thing that we don't know is how long you have to be driving before you're considered to be hogging the lane in quotes. You know, is it five miles? Is it one mile? Nobody really knows. And so it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how that works out and uh how this is going to be enforced. You know, the bill is signed and the governor put his name on it and it 
made it through the House and the Senate by overwhelming majorities. Clearly not a lot of opposition to it. Like I said at the top of this episode, the legislative session was bookended by a couple of issues that GOP lawmakers have been discussing for a long time. An abortion ban and an open carry gun law. Here's reporter Jamie Lovegrove again on what legislators passed on the open carry issue. Open carry debates in general have been around South Carolina for quite a few years. Uh, There have been any number of attempts by conservative lawmakers to expand uh, gun rights in South Carolina in in a few different ways. The central debate within the Republican Party has become how far to go. So there were really two different efforts put forward this year as they have been in the past. One was this quote-unquote open carry with training bill, which would allow concealed weapons permit holders to carry handguns openly in public, um, effectively meaning, you know, before you had to cover your gun with a jacket, you can open the jacket now in public, you know, and, and that will be fine and not against the law if you are a concealed weapons permit holder, which means that you had to have gone through, you know, state mandated training uh, and background checks in order to get that permit. You know, those are the the people who will be able to carry openly in public. The other effort is uh, what supporters call constitutional carry, probably be more accurately described as permitless carry, which would allow all legal gun owners in South Carolina, regardless of whether they have a concealed weapons permit, regardless of whether they've been trained or have gone through background checks, they could carry handguns openly in public as well. Uh, So that was the more expansive version, but what ended up passing was this somewhat more modest version that applies only to concealed weapons permit holders. How much support did that more expansive version have? You know, a a pretty decent amount in both the House and the Senate, uh, but just not enough for a majority. Uh, You know, of course, they were universally opposed by Democrats. Uh, and then there were a lot of, of moderate Republicans who were comfortable with expanding gun rights to allow for these trained gun owners to, to carry openly, but thought that it would be going a little too far to let anyone be doing it. Uh, and, and so voted against that. You know, there were fairly close votes in both chambers, but decisive. It was, it was clearly uh, just did not have majority support this year. The theme of this year's legislative session was elections have consequences. You know, it's a cliche that we hear a lot of times on the campaign trail or a lot of times from from pundits and politicians. But this year really proved it to be true. Elections had consequences. The 2020 election specifically, where Republicans added three new senators, they flipped three Democratic held Senate seats uh, and two Democratic held House seats. But particularly the Senate was where it was most important because for quite a few years now, even though Democrats were in the minority in the Senate, the minority party has a lot more power in the Senate than it does in the House because it's able to block bills that it doesn't like. It's able to filibuster and speak for many, many hours basically until the majority gets tired and gets frustrated and stops stops their effort. But because of the fact that Republicans added those three Senate seats, they effectively had enough votes to shut down any filibuster. They didn't actually end up needing to do that, but Democrats knew that there was nothing in effect that they could do to stop these bills on their own. Their only hope was the Republicans not being unified and Republicans splitting off. But for the most part, on a lot of these hot 
topic uh, issues, Republicans were pretty unified. And so they were able to, you know, move some of these bills that have gotten stuck in the Senate for, for many years through. And that was a pretty significant development. And it will be something that both parties, frankly, will be talking about on the campaign trail next year. Republicans will say, look, you sent us to Columbia with a mandate to do these types of of socially conservative issues, uh, and we did it, and you should, you know, reward us by sending us back to office. Democrats will speak to their voters and say, you know, we warned you that they were going to do this if you didn't elect us. You know, it came true, and and the only way that Democrats will be able to roll back any of those changes uh, will be to win back some of those seats that they lost and, you know, ideally for them, win back more seats than they lost and try to really significantly shrink Republican majorities. Uh, so it, it really did show this year that not just having a majority, but expanding those majorities and having a Republican governor really makes a difference in a state like South Carolina. And the impact of this session will be felt for many years to come. Before we wrap up today, we have one last thing for you. You might recall that back in January, we talked on this podcast about a South Carolina state flag design that caused quite an uproar online. South Carolina has one of the most distinctive flags, but there actually isn't a standardized version of it. So there are many variations of the flag flying around out there. That's why a group of historians set out to create an official design based on the state's history and the flag's origins. After exhaustive research, they shared their final design choice with the Post and Courier. And... People really did not like it. So they went back to the drawing board to try again and sent new options to lawmakers for potential approval. Here's Adam Benson again with an update. This really emerged as one of the hottest topics of the session that nobody saw coming, really, is is what it came down to. Uh, You know, South Carolina's flag is widely considered among one of the top two or three most distinctive of any in the country. It's it's right up there with the the bear, you know, trying to get across California's flag. So... This is this is uh, you know this is something that's a point of pride for folks here. And like you said, South Carolina has not actually had a standardized flag since 1940. So that means producers can really do whatever they want to in terms of how the palmetto looks, which color blue to use, how to angle the crescent. So lawmakers wanted to to clear this off their plate by giving two options basically of a, of a flag design, and they're pretty subtle options. Uh, what they and both of them had to do with the, how do I say this, the canopy and the trunk size of the palmetto. Nobody was really in dispute about the color or the crescent, but that palmetto, like you said, was sort of the, the thing that, that really uh, people were hung up on. So lawmakers sent in April, uh, a Senate uh, committee sent a bill to the floor that would give lawmakers two options to choose from. They didn't want to give them more than that because they thought it would lead to some, you know, a lot of grandstanding on the House floor. And, you know, they wanted to get this done. And that's where Senate Minority Leader Brad Hutto enters the equation. He is from Orangeburg. And as soon as the bill hit the Senate calendar, he contested it, which basically means until he removes his opposition, no debate could happen. It couldn't go anywhere. I think people were sort of looking at that as the days dwindled down and Brad Hutto would not take his name off of it. He had a great reaction. I asked him why at the end of the, the last day of the legislative session, and he said to me that in a lot of ways, the flag reminds him of his wife, and that 
every picture he sees of her is different, but they're all beautiful to him. That's how he views the flag. There's a, so and he said that he's not planning on, on, block, on removing his name from uh, the bill to allow a debate to happen. So I don't know if it's going to come up again next year or not, but design of the flag cannot be done without legislative approval. So that's where things stand. It, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with it. All right, listeners, that's all for today. If you want to know more about the abortion ban, the hate crimes bill, or the South Carolina flag design, and you missed those earlier episodes, check today's show notes for links. You'll also find information there on how to sign up for our weekly newsletter. Comments, questions, or suggestions for this podcast can be sent to understandsc at postandcourier.com, or you can find us on Twitter at understandsc. Thanks so much for listening. We will be back next week. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Our music is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music on Spotify at Billy Fountain. We'd love to know what you think of this show. You can reach us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or on Twitter at understandsc. If you're a fan of this show, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app. Keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com. We'll see y'all next week.